I'm going to ask Ian to pray a short video which features perhaps the most famous ever reading of those words, or at least some of those words. So, Ian, can we roll video? So if you could just give us a hand getting the PowerPoint set up. A couple of things about that. That was uh, Christmas Eve of 1968. Does anybody remember it? So, did you remember? Did, did you watch it? Yeah. yeah. I, I was alive, but I can't remember watching it. Uh, I remember seeing the moon, la- the moon landing, but I never saw that particular episode. So I want to think about that whole section that we've just read um, today. Uh, question, though. Who's anybody seen the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa? A few, few people have been there. Why is it famous? It's actually famous because it's badly built. <laughs> right? Uh, it's a completely... Well, it's, it's a pretty good tower, but there's plenty others just like it all throughout Europe. They're bell towers that are attached to a cathedral or a church. Uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa is famous because from a very early... It was built on, on boggy soil and they laid the foundations too shallow. Uh, and so from a very early stage, even before the thing was finished, it was starting to tilt. And it's only still upright because they've bolstered the, the uh, foundations many times. Now, the reason I tell the story is we have just read the Bible's foundation. If you ignore that, you won't really understand the rest of the book. If you misunderstand it, you'll get something else wrong in the rest of the book. Because this is how God, the divine author, has chosen to reveal himself and to introduce himself. Now, we believe, as I said in the, uh, the introductory talk I gave last week by video, we believe that these words were penned by the human author Moses, but behind them stands God, the one who speaks. And so Moses wrote these things down. This is not just the introduction to Genesis. It's the introduction to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, or what the Jews call the Torah, but it's the introduction to the whole Bible. 
And it's really interesting, and we'll see this quite clearly when we do our next series of Revelation, that the first two chapters of Genesis are very closely paired to the last two chapters of Revelation. So the whole of the Bible's 66 books are bookended by very, very similar concepts. So if you want to understand Revelation, you've got to understand Genesis. If you want to understand Jesus, you need to understand Genesis. If you want to understand yourself, you need to understand Genesis. And so that's what we're aiming to do today, to think some of these things through. Um, Now, life's big questions. Uh, Any thoughtful person, and there's some people that aren't particularly thoughtful, so maybe they're not that troubled by them, but I wonder if anybody gets out without ever giving this a thought at all. I think that's one of the roles of our entertainment world, is to stop people thinking. Uh, I was told years ago, and I think this is true, do you know what amusement means? Literally means don't think. A is the Greek prefix that, that, that neg- negate, that's neg- negative. Muse means to think. Amusement means don't think. Now, uh, there was a, boy, a, a fellow called Neil Postman a few years ago who wrote a very influential book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. We live in a very distracted world where people have all sorts of reasons not to think much. But if, if people are ever alone with their thoughts and start to think the deep things, one of them will be, where did I come from? What's my origin? Another is, who am I? What's my identity? Another one is, what am I doing here? Is there a purpose behind me being alive? And any sensible person would be thinking, where am I headed? In other words, questions of destiny. Now, I've told you before, I I worked a year in the funeral industry and being a pastor, I've had to do many funerals. And it's interesting to see the sorts of things that people use to sum up their life in a funeral. Uh, And and the idea that this life is one that has a, a, a termination point. And sometimes you'll hear people talk about the great unknown. What's the great unknown to a lot of people has actually been made known to us in the Bible. But we even get a hint of our destiny in this passage here right at the very beginning. Now those sorts of questions, if you were to ask certain people, uh, they would tell you there's no answer to any of them. Uh, So Richard Dawkins is perhaps the world's most famous atheist. Uh, He's a biologist, that's his profession. He's a very, very well-educated man and, and a brilliant writer. Uh, he's intelligent, he's articulate, um, he's probably good fun to be around really, but he's wrong on quite a number of important things, I think. But in his book called The River of Out of Eden, uh, where as a biologist he was explaining what he says is a, a Darwinian view of life, he says this, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. What do you reckon? Is he onto something? Right. Now that is probably the logical end point, the conclusion of a world that denies God. But my question for him would be, how is there something rather than nothing? And where did it come from? Now, he would have something of an answer, but eventually, if you talk to him long enough, you would have to agree that he can't prove it. Now, he would accept that that you can't disprove God's existence. I've read in his book where he says that. Uh, These things are matters of faith. 
But I think the evidence weighs in favour of a belief in God because we have got something and the Bible's explanation is that God has always been and he's the source of what we have. Now, the idea of being a scientist is not something that excludes the possibility of Christian faith. There are many fantastic scientists who are genuine Bible-believing Christians. There have always been and there still are. Uh, One of them was James Clark Maxwell. He has been called one of the three greatest physicists ever to live. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, James Clark Maxwell. Einstein was asked how big a debt he owed to um, Isaac Newton and he said, oh no, I stand on the shoulders of Maxwell. So this James Clark Maxwell, he may not be perhaps as famous in our day as, as Einstein and Isaac Newton, but nonetheless he's regarded as one of the greatest physicists of all time. It was said of him at his funeral, this is what was said, said uh, in, in the talk of him at his funeral, he had gauged and fathomed all the schemes and systems of philosophy and had found them utterly empty and unsatisfying. And he turned with simple faith to the gospel of the Saviour. This was a man who plumbed the very depths of physical science and yet he was a person of genuine, simple faith in the Lord Jesus. Now when he went to Cambridge University uh, to be a professor of physics there, he established the Cavendish Laboratory, which is still in use. And above the doors, every student that enters or every scientist that enters goes under an inscription Uh, which in English, it was written in Latin, but in English it's a quote from Psalm 111 verse 2. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. In other words, people, uh, people who take pleasure in God's works are going to try to search them out. And that's the role of science. And so James Clark Maxwell said the role of science is to take the world that God's given, the universe that's got, that God has given, and to search out the things that God has put there. And so science is a search for the things that God has made, the things that God produces. He's not thinking of an atheistic description of the universe at all. He says everything began with God. Now, if you doubt the capacity of faith and, 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 and science to coexist, then think again about Apollo 8. Now, that was the first manned spacecraft to orbit the Earth and the Moon. And that was the uh, the logo that was designed by one of the uh, participants to describe what they were doing. Conveniently, the uh, the orbit made it look like an eight, eight for uh, the eighth Apollo mission. And so they broadcast from outer space on, the, on Christmas Eve of 1968. And they were the first people ever to witness an Earth rise. They'd been around the dark side of the Moon. They'd been places where humans had never been before. That was as great a triumph of science as had ever been accomplished at that point. And yet when they saw the earth rise, they'd they'd been prepared for it all the way. Uh, They were told to have a statement and they were told to make a statement that would be heard by more people simultaneously than any statement in human history and given the opportunity to say something from outer space back to earth, they read Genesis 1. In the beginning, God... These are very gifted scientists and they saw no problem, no conflict between science and faith. In fact, given the the evidence that they had, all they could do was resort to the word of scripture. It seemed the most fitting thing to say. Well, Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 is like the introduction to the prologue of Genesis 
1 to the early part of chapter 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now that uh, phrase without form is, it translates one Hebrew word which means nothing. It means vanity. It means a waste or a wilderness. It can be translated in a number of different ways. Later on in the writings of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 10, he speaks of the howling waste of the wilderness. In other words, way out in the desert, there's just nothing there. Well, there's desert, but nothing that is of any use to a person at that particular point. The earth was without form. The earth was waste. Void means to be empty. Now, it's only used three times in the Old Testament. The other two are in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah is virtually a quote from Genesis 1 verse 2 to say that the destruction of the city had been so complete that the other uh, city was no longer there. The place was empty. So without form means a wilderness. Void means empty. Gordon Wenham's a wonderful commentator on these books. He's in this book. He's an English uh, theologian. And he says you could almost say that the condition that is described in Genesis 1 verse 2 is total chaos. So God created, but he wasn't finished. But the spirit, and again this is an area of debate because the same word for spirit could mean breath or wind. And so different scholars have come with different ideas. I'm satisfied that this is a description of the spirit of God and his activity in, in the creation. The spirit was hovering and ready for action, says Wenham. And so we've got this situation which is chaos. It's, it's uh, formless and void. And the spirit is getting ready to go into action. And the next thing we read is that uh, God said, God spoke. And so that issues us into the, the six days of creation. Now, form and meaning are really very important. The way that a writer structures his writing is a clue to understanding what the writing is about. Now, you've already seen that Genesis 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, is very repetitive. Did you notice that? Lots of phrases that appear over and over. That's by design. This is not accidental. Absolutely, everything, every word in that uh, story is there by design and the form conveys something of the meaning so for each day the day begins and God said let there be and there was and there was evening and there was morning so that's how each day begins and ends what that means is verse one and two are not one of the days of creation we've got to get that straight first up verse one and two describes God's initial act of creation where the earth was formless and void. It was chaos. The acts of creation that we read about from verse 3 onwards begin, God said, let there be, and they end with the description of evening and morning, and they give the number of the day. Now, each of the days of creation has a seven-part formula. First is the announcement, where God says. Second, there's a command, where God says, let there be third part is there's a fulfillment it was so in other words it's just exactly as god said it would be then there's the execution so let there be light there it is it was so there's light number five is the, a word of approval where god looks and says it's good god sees and he says it's good then there's a subsequent word where god gives a name to something god called 
Now that doesn't apply in every one of the five days, six days as we'll see. And then after that, the seventh element is the number. So every one of these things is uh, a formula, uh, they're, they're elements of a formula that governs each of the days. Now there's some other really interesting things and if you want these slides I'm happy to email them to you so don't, don't get too stressed about writing de things down or taking pictures if you don't, you're welcome to but I'm happy to send this out. Uh, the beginning and the end of the passage are very tightly knitted together to show that this whole passage 1-1 one, one, to chapter 2 verse 3 are tied together. In chapter 1 verse 1 in Hebrew there are seven words. Chapter 1 verse 2 there are 14 words. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, there are 35 words. Do you get the idea? Every one is a multiple of seven. Seven is the divine number. It's the perfect number. It's the number of completeness. And so the way that the writer has structured these things, he wants us to know, Moses wants us to know, that chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 and chapter 2 verses 1 and 3 are the beginning and the ending of this prologue section. And the idea of having uh, multiples of seven is an indication of that. Now there's more sevens in the passage. If you were to go through and count, there are 35 references, five times seven for, uh, of God throughout the whole passage that we read. Earth, 21 references, three times seven. Heaven and the firmament or the sky times 21 three times seven and it was so seven indications that god looks and and everything is just according to plan god saw that it was good seven words of divine approval this is a witness to the fact that this is divine writing and it's writing about things to show us even in the form of it that it's turned out exactly as god intended it now there's more we can say about the form if you if you were reading it and following it along you'll notice that the days are described in varying lengths and that's significant as well so day one is a fairly brief statement day two is slightly longer day three is a fair bit longer and day four is roughly the same length but day five back to a bit briefer day six well it's off the charts and day seven the day on which god rested again is back to a fairly brief statement all of those things are significant. So form, the way the writer structures the writing, gives a clue to the ultimate meaning. Day three and day six are strongly linked in terms of the words that are used. Day three is the longest of the days up until that point and day six is the longest of them all. So day three and day six are very strongly linked in their content and their meaning. Both of them have these features in common. Both of those two days, and they're the only two days that share these things, we find that twice God speaks and God said turns up in both, in both those day three and day six, but none of the others. We find twice in those sections, day three and day six, that God says it's good. So that sets day three and day six apart from the rest. Now I'd like to suggest, and I didn't make this up, I've, uh, I've learnt this from Gordon Wenham and my lecturer at Ridley College, Andrew Reid, was the first person to turn me on to this idea. There's a real structural unity to the way that the days are presented which helps us to understand the purpose of Moses. Moses was writing to satisfy the curiosity not of 21st century scientific thinkers 
but to satisfy the very real curiosity of the people of Israel who'd been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Which God, amongst the many that we've heard of in Egypt and the many that are worshipped in Canaan, which God is leading us into the promised land? And so they're the things that are driving Genesis because they're the things that the, the, the description of creation because they're the things that are describing uh, driving Genesis. Now we've seen that when God when God spoke at, at the beginning, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. First thing we need to know about the word created throughout the Bible, the only person that is said to create is God. So whenever we read that word, it's always linked to God, no one else. So this is a special creation. But when God created, the earth was without form and it was void. In other words, it was desolate and it was empty. Day one, the creation of light. And God calls the, the, day, the light day and the night night. Day two, the creation of water and sky. Day three, the creation of land and plants. Now what I'd like to suggest... And as I say, this is uh, an idea which various theologians have floated for the last couple of hundred years, is that day four matches day one. Because day one is the form and day four is the filling. So what was empty is now being filled. So uh, the creation of light, the day and night, on day four, to match that, we're told that the lights of the heavens were created, the larger light, the smaller light. Notice that they're not named. And the stars as well. Day five matches day two because the water and the sky were the product of day two but they're filled on day five with sea creatures and birds. Day three, the longest day in the sequence up until then, is matched by day six because the, the, the land and the plants for food on it will be of benefit to the animals and humans. And so there's this parallelic Day one matches day four, day two matches day five, day three matches day six. And I think that's the intention. And then day seven is unmatched. And you'll notice that there's no end God said, and you'll notice also that there's no end to day seven, which suggests that we're still in it. We're living in the era of God's resting. Now we'll talk more about that in a moment. In its world, Genesis was a radical document because this is a book that says there's only one God. The culture that the Jews had been part of, or the Hebrews had been part of, they weren't yet called Jews, there were dozens of gods, hundreds of gods. There were gods for everything. Now, to take one example, uh, in the late 19th century, a Babylonian tablet was uncovered, which explains how the Babylonians saw creation. And so it's been given the name of the Enuma Elish tablets. In the Enuma Elish story about how the world came into being, it describes many gods and they're all in conflict with each other. In contrast, Genesis talks about one omnipotent, unchallengeable god, a god who's personal. These gods in the Enuma Elish had no interest in anybody but themselves. But the God of Genesis is a God, there's one of him and no other. There's no suggestion of any other God being around. The gods of Babylon were fickle, they were overbearing and they were immoral. They were more immoral than humans. 
But Genesis represents God as holy and entirely trustworthy. And not only that, he's generous because he gives things. The gods of Babylon were at war with each other and earth was a sort of a sad byproduct of that. This battle went on and earth just sort of came up. Not in Genesis. Creation's purposeful. God meant it to happen. It's not an accident. It happened. The gods of Babylon created humans to be their slaves so that they could have a rest. Humans are the high point of God's created order in Genesis. That's why Genesis uh, um, day six is the longest. It's to stand out as being the one that has the most detail because it's the day on which the most significant thing happened and that's the creation of people. The idea of life that underpinned the Babylonian view was that life was evil, it was chaotic and it was full of conflict. The view of life that we get from Genesis is that life is good. Have you ever heard the saying, life sucks? You might hear some people go a bit further and say, life sucks and then you die. Don't have a bar of it, challenge it. That could be a way to get into a good gospel conversation. Life doesn't suck. It's difficult, but life's good. And there's lots of goodness in life. And even people who are suffering very badly will tell you they can find it. Even in the midst of their their sufferings. Life doesn't suck, it's good because it comes from a good and trustworthy creator. Full of power, but full of goodness. So the question, where have we come from? Well, we've come from a God who is unchallenged and unlimited in his power and his authority. He's a purposeful God. Creation is not an accident. Creation was God's intention. We're not told why he did it. I guess we can surmise that God created and we're the result. To read Genesis 1 lets us know very clearly that God is personal because God speaks. But his speech is powerful because when he speaks, it happens. The creation is good and orderly, not accidental. We've already seen that. Where have we come from? We've come from a good a good God who intended us to be. But the other message, or another message of the creation story that we have in Genesis is that God and his creation are distinct. Now there's some views of the world, and you'll even meet people these days who hold to some of them, that say that, well, the tree is God and the sky is God and the ground is God and that ant is God and you're God, you've got God within you. Have you met people that talk like that? They're out, out there, I've met them, Right? And so they'll say that that we're all divine and we've got to find the God within and that really everything in life is, is divine. Well, the Bible says no. The Bible says God is without, God is holy, he's separate from his creation, but he's given the creation to the created. We are creatures. Psalm 24 puts it this way, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. You, who are you? You are a resident in the world that God made. You owe your life to to him. Everything that you have originally originates in God's good design. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So what are we doing here? 
Well, according to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and we're going to come back to this in a couple of weeks, just very briefly, we're male and female. We're made in the image of God. It's the only aspect of God's creation that has that attached to it. Human, human beings have a special status because out of all the other things that were made, we alone are made in God's image, male and female. We, to be made in God's image means that we're God's representatives. Humans were made to represent God. To be made in God's image means that we're created to reign. So the language of dominion is royal language. Humans were meant to reign under God's rule, overrule all rule on God's good earth. We have a privileged role here. But uh, there's a role too for humans in populating the earth and so there's a command there to be fruitful and multiply, uh, which means that sex is God's idea and it's his good intention for his people. So what are we doing here? Well, it's all bound up with being made in God's image and as I say, we'll come back to that in a few weeks. But the other thing that comes to us from what are we doing here is we're provided for. All these good gifts have been given. Day three set up a world in which plants produced food for animals and for humans. But we're not slaves. God calls us to serve him, but not in the way that the Babylonian gods created humans to be their slaves. But within this reading, there's a suggestion of where we're headed. And so day seven is the day on which God rests. Uh, there's no formula. No God said. There's no evening and morning. Now, Andrew Reid, um, my lecturer from Ridley College, in his commentary on these, these words, which I think if you wanted to read a good commentary on Genesis, I'd recommend Andrew's. Uh, he says, The days of the week have their goal in a day that is different from them. So the whole purpose of day one, two, three, four, five and six is headed somewhere and it's the, the goal of those six days is a day which is different from them and it's the day on which God rests. So God rested means that he ceased from work but the word is very strongly related to the word from which we get Sabbath. So God took a Sabbath and that's supposed to be a model for God's people that tells us that we need to rest. Apparently you know, the Russians under communism tried coming up with a five-day week. They, they, they kept it going for a couple of decades. It didn't work very well. There's something incredibly wonderful about the seven-day week that's embedded into creation. But the seven-day week should involve rest. You can't just work. God rested. He'd done all that he had to do. When he looks at it and sees that it's good, it means it's just as he wanted it. It's perfect for the intention that he had for it. And so he rested. It doesn't mean he put his feet up, uh, but what it does mean is he ceased from doing what he did and his human creation is meant to imitate him in this. But what we can say in this is the goal of creation is rest. The six days point ahead to a time of rest. So where are we headed? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Because this idea of rest is taken up there. Now Genesis is a, a signboard which points towards things that are more fully explained elsewhere in the Bible. But the goal of creation is working towards the rest of God. The seventh day didn't come to an end. We're in the era of God's rest now. But Hebrews chapter 4 
is the continuation of a longer discussion of the topic of rest. You might want to read the rest at home. But the idea is taken up of Israel not entering into its rest when it went into the promised land. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. In other words, the disobedient Israelites were not going to enter God's rest in Canaan. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So what's the goal of creation? According to Genesis 1-2, to it's to enter into rest. According to the writer of Hebrews, it's to enter into rest. How can we do that? only through Jesus now Jesus uses that language in Matthew 11 come to me he says all who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light now have you found rest for your soul Because the only way you will, the only way that you can enjoy the rest of God is to come through Jesus. Jesus says, give me your burden and I'll give you my rest. That's the the equation. The goal of creation was to enter into the rest of God. And in Christ, every one of us can do that by faith. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for these foundational words. We thank you for these great and wonderful truths that uh, your word contains. We acknowledge you today as the unchallenged creator of everything that is. The earth is the Lord's. We live in your good earth as, uh, as people who have received much of the benefit, many of the good things that only you, a generous God, can, can give. Help us to grow in our faith that you are the one who began everything, the one who sustains everything and the one who will one day bring everything to an end and then create a new world Uh, father help us to grow in our our trust in you Uh, help us to honor you by taking regular rest help us to honor you by serving you well in this world that you've given us 
but help us chiefly to honour you by submitting our lives to your rule through your son, the Lord Jesus, who says, come to me and find rest for your troubled souls. And so I pray that you would help us to live in the light of these things, to live confidently and to base our lives on them so that our lives are a good example to others uh, in a world which has turned its back on you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.